Good morning. Uh, this morning uh, we have with us uh, from Campbell University, uh, Dr. Kathy Cowling, Associate Professor and Director of Criminal Justice, uh, and uh, like many of her students from Campbell. So welcome, glad to have you this morning. Our first case is in the matter of McClatchy Company et al. Uh, versus the um, uh, Alamance County Sheriff's Office et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, may it please the court. I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, good morning. My name is Mike Toddy from Stevens, Martin, Vaughn, and Toddy, and I am here with my colleague and mentor, Mr. Hugh Stevens. We are humbled to represent the nine appellants in this matter, and we thank you for your time this morning. We also thank the Grand Police Department and its counsel for its time. It's a privilege to be here. In addition to uh, addressing questions of the court, there are three main areas we intend to address today. First, this court has subject matter jurisdiction over this matter. Second, the appropriate statutory interpretation of General Statute 132-1.4, large A, including subsection G. And three, Judge Hanford's proper use of his broad statutory authority. Preliminarily, if you would indulge me in a few remarks. We as a firm have pursued more than 60 of these uh, release actions, petitions, whatever they've been called. The forms prescribed by the AOC back in 2016 have worked well for our clients, for us, for the courts, and for our, uh, we believe, for the law enforcement. If we've done something wrong here, we need to know what it is and how we can correct that. We don't think we have, and I'll talk to a bit about more about that later, but if we don't, we ask the court to use it, if we haven't, we ask the court to use its supervisory powers to guide us on what we needed to do. I note also that the General Assembly placed this statute in the middle of the public records law, a law that this court has interpreted for 30 plus years to err on the side of openness and access. Also note that only the Graham Police Department appealed Judge Hanford's June 15, 2021 order. The Alamance County Sheriff's Office has not, and it's only the Graham Police Department that doesn't want these recordings made public. We still do not have the recordings that uh, Alamance County Sheriff's Office had and that Judge Hanford released because of the stay order. Um, neither uh, Alamance County Sheriff's Office or the Graham Police Department appealed Judge uh, Hanford's preliminary March 2021 order. It's also important to note that everything that took place that are in these recordings happened in public in Graham, Alamance, North Carolina. As at least two of the justices know well, there's no expectation of privacy on a public street, as the Court of Appeals held in State v. De Graffenried in 2018. It's also, I think, important to note, given that the statute vests the judge deciding these matters with great discretion, that Judge Hanford is a resident Superior Court judge in Alamance County. He's there, he's a witness to what was transpiring and has transpired there, and he saw fit to release all of these recordings. He is also the only individual, to my knowledge, who's reviewed all of these recordings. They are not part of the record. The Court of Appeals did not review them, and I do not believe they're before you for uh, your review. With respect to subject matter jurisdiction, I believe the appellee refers to it as standing, 
And I think that's actually the second issue in statutory interpretation. But what we have is back in a different case, actually the two cases that the appellees, appellee relies on to say we don't have subject matter jurisdiction are pending petitions for discretionary review before this court. It's a Pasquotank County case and an Orange County case. And in the Pasquotank County case, after Judge Foster found that we had filed, properly filed an action, after the fact, Judge Tillett said we had not. And so if you look at the statute and you look at subsection G, which is what we went under, and page two and three of the record, what do you have? You have the petition that we filed using the AOC form. At the upper right-hand block, we've checked 132-1.4 subsection G, and we've identified with reasonable particularity what we are looking for as subsection G requires. The statute does not identify parties that you would sue like in the typical public records action. That is there, if a public official does not provide you with a record, you sue that official to get them to comply with the law. Here it's inverted. Here, in order to get these recordings, you need a court order. So does law enforcement, so does somebody who is in the recording. But in any event, you need a court order. So this is the process that the General Assembly laid out for us to do that. And in that regard, um, we filed the petition. We notified the sheriff and the police chief who are the law enforcement, heads of the law enforcement. We also notified the district attorney as required under the statute. And Judge Hanford, when he issued his March 8th order, ordered, using an AOC form, ordered uh, law enforcement to notify the law enforcement whose uh, image or voice appears in the recordings that they had an opportunity to be heard. There was no mystery as to what was before the court. No one sought clarification in the March uh, proceeding or hearing as to what exactly do you want. There was some argument over the breath, but Mr. Stevens and I, when we do these petitions or seek release, are in the position we've always been in. We haven't seen what we're asking for. And so we've identified with reasonable particularity and the, the respondents were able to produce those records for the judge. Counsel, wh why do you think, uh, if you compare section, subsection F and subsection G, uh, you know, one's talking very clearly about petitioning for these things and providing um, a, a procedure to do so, and then the other one just refers to an action. I don't think there's anything in G that references a petition, right? So what do we make of that? Why does the statute use those two different, because one thing you could say is, well, they must be two different things then. I, I, I agree, and this is not before the record, but I know it happened, and maybe this is sort of what guides my, my thoughts on this, is that when this statute came out, our colleague Amanda Martin, Kelly Myers from the Wake County Trial Court's office, and got together with the AOC and they promulgated this form. Well, yes, one says action, one says petition. If you look at the juvenile proceeding statutes, you file an action by filing a petition in those. Maybe that's what they interpreted. It's the same path. The oddity about the way others want to interpret this is we have to sue law enforcement who isn't complying with the law if we're bringing an action. I don't think, I, I literally think it's form over substance. If you put your thumb over it and said action for release, everything that anybody who is involved in this needs to know, it's there on that form. Who's involved, what they're seeking, and then the second part of it, because we don't have the ability to identify the law enforcement, is the AOC form, which Judge Hanford used to, to ask law enforcement to notify law the officers that they have the right to appear. 
in a lot of these, the people who are in the recording, the person who's making an allegation of misconduct or whatever, appears at the hearing and over our objection because they don't have statutory uh, right to be there and are standing, they will get to say their piece about whether it, or not it should be released. But it's a process that's worked very, very well. I, I think it's also important to note that maybe the difference is we need to uh, have file a civil action cover sheet and a um, and have summons issued. I believe we filed a civil action cover sheet. It's not in the record, but I don't think you can get anything filed in Superior Court without doing it. The other difference is we paid the $200, which you don't have to do under F. Those are really the only major differences. What I'll say to this, Judge Justice Dietz, is that if you took out subsection G, law enforcement can get the recordings released under F, and anybody who's in them can get them released under F. So G has to be something different. My clients weren't entitled to disclosure, to my knowledge, under the law, and so we had to go with G. If the Alamance News was part of this coalition and Tom Murawski, who was the reporter arrested during all of this, was there, he could go under G. That's my guess is why they didn't participate. They had to that, do that. I think you're right about the inter interaction between F and G there in terms of who can request it, but I'm curious, do you think that's what the Court of Appeals held? Was that their understanding of who can request it? <laughs> well, the Court of Appeals decided an issue that was not before them. They decided that unless you are entitled to disclosure under subsection C, you're never entitled to release under subsection G. That just is not a correct reading of the statute. I cannot stand on my head and make it say that. And I, you know, I understand that that's what they decided. But at the end of the day, if, if, we, don't, if we don't qualify for disclosure, we don't have standing under subsection F. So that leads us to G. And we aren't making a contention, have never made a contention, we're entitled to disclosure. Has there been any um, detrimental reliance on the AOC form that suggested an interpretation of uh, the law that, that you're? A absolutely, in the Pasquotank County case, it, I don't know if you all remember that, but Judge Foster entered an order that said we probably filed an action. He entered that order, I think on the 17th of May, on the 18th of May, the district attorney held a press conference and he started showing the recordings. And so we're like, okay, well, I guess there's not gonna be a criminal prosecution. We'll amend our petition because Judge Foster's order was temporal. He said it's not appropriate at this time because there was a pending criminal investigation. And so we amended it. And we eventually, I had to go to Currituck County and that's when Judge Tillett started talking about, isn't this like the Charns case? And he was actually saying Charvis and I didn't know what he was referring to. Um, and the Charns case is different. And there, the Charns petition or uh, plaintiff filed a public records action, didn't serve it, went to a trial court judge and got an ex parte order requiring the defendants to produce the records or appear and show why they shouldn't be held in contempt of court. Different from this situation. But yes, Justice Riggs, we did have detrimental reliance. We went to the court, we made our argument, there wasn't any mystery as to why we were there. The facts and circumstances changed, we went back and on an oral motion to dismiss, Judge Tillett dismissed our case. And so now we have a number of these pending where there's a, a one Superior Court judge overruling another and we had to go back and decide what it is we want to do. I will tell you, and I wasn't being cute, maybe I was being a little annoyed, that I went back and changed the form in a PDF and crossed out petition and put action. Because I think it's the same thing. And we went and got summons and all of that sort of. If we were to explain using our super, supervisory authority that 
we interpret this to mean a, a civil lawsuit subject to the, the rules of civil procedure, you're not time barred from filing that action. But, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, yes, no. I believe we would be, and that was the second part of the detrimental reliance. We're beyond three years, which I think is the statute of limitations. This only came up in a appellate context in 2023. Um, it, it's important to understand that if you are to remand saying, we didn't do it right, please tell us what to do and we'll do it, but also allow us the ability to go back to Almance County Superior Court and get the recordings that Judge Hanford has spent hours and hours and hours reviewing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, that would be an unjust result, in, in my opinion. Um, unless the, the court has any more on jurisdiction, we've, we've actually covered the, the, the standing part of it or the statutory interpretation part of it. We're not entitled to disclosure under subsection C, so we went with release under subsection G, and that's what we did. The last major area that we think the court needs to consider is did just Judge Hanford properly use his discretion? The Court of Appeals says that he has a limited discretion. I read the statute to say absolutely otherwise. He must consider the eight factors in subsection G, and he may consider any other factor that he deems appropriate and exercise his discretion. And he did just that. And if you look at the transcript of the June hearing, he patiently listened to my argument, he patiently listened to Mr. Banks' argument, he patiently listened to the Sheriff's Council's argument and some rebuttal, and then he went through and said how much he'd thought about it and that his primary concern was transparency and accountability and the public's uh, trust in the justice system, and that's why he made his decision. I made an argument, and my colleagues don't even like my argument, but the, the argument I made nonetheless was that I believe the process that's been set up here by ordering those recordings into court, there may be a First Amendment right that attaches to them. It may not be every time, but in this case, multiple people were arrested. There were two federal lawsuits that stemmed out of this march, and they became judicial records and all of that. Council, has any uh, Sorry. First Amendment claim been preserved here? We, yes, Your Honor, we argue that in the trial court level, that, that very argument that I made. Um, and in our brief, which is in the record, uh, structured our argument as such, that, that we were trying to attach, uh, we believe that a First Amendment right of access attached. He didn't explicitly say, I agree with you, Mr. Toddy. What he said was, I don't have the authority to censor these records absent a compelling governmental interest and none has been shown, I think is what he said. And so I think that I'm speculating, but that I believe is the genesis of his statement is my argument. I think in that regard, if you were to remand, because that's an inartful statement of whatever the law was, it should be remand to say, based on the uh, uh, respondent's contentions that, uh, that his findings that it may damage someone's reputation and it may uh, put somebody's safety in jeopardy, what if any redactions he would make if he were allowed to make them. I think that's the most that this court should do. I think the court should find that we are properly before the court just as Judge Foster did and just as many other judges have done. I'll also share with the court, recently I filed a more traditional complaint in one of these in Cabarrus County and I got the summons issued and all of that and there the judge said, this is a petition, put it in the, the respondents boxes and let's get on with this. And this is just a process and, and it worked very smoothly and we got those recordings within a matter of a few days. Can I just take you back to the, you said there's a three-year statute of limitations, so you think 
potentially in this case, you'd be barred from not bringing the action. Why, why do you think that would I, be the case? I don't know that the statute itself gives it. So then you go with the catch-all. I think it's 1-52, which is the three years for everything else. That's a guess. There is no appellate uh, jurisprudence on that, to my knowledge. But that's I mean, where I Because it could be the 10-year statute. Well, I suppose and, so, yeah. And then it, or you'd have some real good equitable tolling arguments and other things, since you certainly tried to do file something. I, so I, I agree, Justice Dietz. I guess I'm, I'm, my nature tends to be pragmatic. And what I don't want to be is back here arguing whether it's 1-52 or 10 years or whatever. But that would be helpful for that guidance. I think it's also important that while, to note that while the Grand Police Department in its filing that was requested by Judge Hanford identified areas of concern, at the hearing they didn't argue for any specific redaction. Both law enforcement agencies took the position that none of them should be released whatsoever. And in typical fashion in these situations, which Judge Hanford ordered here, the judge says, what are we fighting about here? That you, know, you can't, do you really object to all of this? And please identify for me. When we did the first few of these, you would go to the hearing on it and you would have no idea what the other side was about to say. And so it was a bit of drawn out and the court not having any idea what's going on. So we started filing our brief. We started asking law enforcement, what parts of this do you have a problem with so maybe we can streamline it for the court? They don't have to answer that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Here at my suggestion, Judge Hanford added that to the AOC form, both uh, Grand Police Department, Alamance County Sheriff's uh, Office complied, and they haven't appealed that. And they identify that, but in the hearing itself, not one specific redaction was made. A lot of times it's the officers dialing somebody's personal cell phone number because somebody's hurt. Please blur that. Um, this person is on the side of the road and they're bleeding, and please blur that for their personal privacy. Unlike the cases that we attached to our brief in the trial court, which involved fatal officer-involved shootings, car chases, car crashes, and things like that where things were released, to my knowledge, while some people were disturbed and affected by the pepper spray, no one was seriously hurt. I don't believe anybody was hospitalized. And so, as I said here, and I say in every one of these, this is completely within the court's discretion. I don't have a right to these other than through this process. And so we're asking you to exercise your discretion to, to uh, give us access to as much as you think is appropriate so that we can show the public. I also say and said here, we're not here to indict or vindicate the police. We're not here to indict or vindicate the protesters or wherever else it is. We're trying to provide the public with more information. The record in connection with our brief, I think it's pages 18 to 116, shows the coverage that happened about this March as of early March 2021. We went back in June and there was additional coverage. There was a documentary about this. There's additional. There's a compelling public interest in this particular set of recordings and thus we ask that the court uh, provide that information, allow the court, trial court's order to stand, and if not, guide us how, so we can go back and do this. I'm probably the person that does this the most in the state and so I feel like this is my cross to bear. I will also say that I know that there are uh, lawyers who need to get these recordings for uh, there's a car crash or a, a DUI and they're trying to get the information. They're not, their client is not in it, but the insurance company is trying to get the information so they have a better understanding of what happened. They're people that come under G. And so 
if we exclude everybody else. It's not just a, as the Graham Police Department says in its brief, this is not a media statute. They're not mentioned in it. They're part of the any person can seek this under G. Um, and, I, and I want to make that clear is that we don't contend that it's the media that does it. Does the media hire us to do it? Yes, they hire us also to bring public records actions and seek to open meetings and things like that. That's what we do. But at the end of the day, the forms worked really well and it streamlined it an already cumbersome process. I often say to the trial judges in this, I wish the General Assembly had done it like they did the public records law. Most of this is not controversial. Let's fight about the stuff that you don't want released for whatever statutory reason. That's not the process they set out. They set out an inverted process, and so we're uh, trying to get access to things that government uh, recording devices on, uh, attached to government employees recorded during the, their law enforcement activities. In a situation like this where there's a large volume of information, uh, who's, uh, does the media have any obligation to try to narrow or more precisely define what they're looking for uh, so that the uh, agency is able to uh, hone in on what's being requested? I don't believe there's any such obligation under the statute. There's a, you know, reasonably identify it with reasonable particularity so that we can understand what you're after. I will say this, Your Honor, in doing a number of these, part of, and it's consistent with my, we're not here to indict or vindicate anyone, as much information as we can have about the incident. Once you start doing hard butt edits or lopping off the front or lopping off the end, our experience is that speculation weighs in. And so if you've got people starting with nothing really exciting happening to the end where cars are driving away, then there's a bookend to bookend. Uh, one of our clients, WREL, after the Durham gas explosion, heard lots of information about heroics of first responders in that. And because of the bent that the media only covers the bad stuff, it was important for WREL to find that. We didn't know what time it was and I, I wish I remembered off the top of my head, but I believe it was 150 hours of recordings. And I pointed out to the judge that it, the statute says you may do an in-camera review, you don't have to. And the judge said, I wanna see it. And, and we provided a terabyte to the first responders to put all the recording, and the court went and did all of that, and at the end of the day, released all of those things. I understand the desire to you know, hone in on this, but with all that, you know, there were a couple hundred marchers, and Dozen, or, yeah, dozens of police officers and law enforcement. I don't know that we were in an ability to say this is what we want because we don't, it's a asking for what you don't know. Uh, it's kind of like a public record when somebody says you need to specifically identify the record. Well, I, I need the records that say this. Well, which are they? I, I, I don't know. We don't have access to them. And so it's the same tension because of the volume in this particular unusual situation that, that may be... Uh, a draw to uh, narrow it, and the court could have said, I need you to narrow it, but he didn't. After Mr. Banks revealed to him that it'd be 55 hours plus, he said, okay. He asked me, how am I gonna review that by next week? And I said, I, I don't think you can. Um, and he ultimately extended it out to June. So I would say, Chief Justice Newby, that most of these are under an hour. They're now there may be more than an hour because multiple law enforcement officers were there but that's the general volume of these. This was an unusual circumstance. 
with that, I see that I've gone over my allotted time. Unless the court has any other questions, I will uh, yield to Mr. Biller. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, Your Honors. It is an honor to appear before you on behalf of the respondent, uh, Christy Cole Baker, in her official capacity as the Chief of Police for the Graham Police Department, um, together with my partner, Adam Banks, and our firm at Visage Law. And it's, it's also a privilege to share the podium with my colleague, Mr. Toddy, his partner, Ms. Martin, who I understand recently left um, his employment to join UNC. And it's intimidating at any time to appear in front of this honorable court. And certainly when you are appearing against the practitioner by his own humble admission um, has tried more of these cases and probably appeared in front of this honored court more than any practitioner in the state on the subject matter of this and the related public records law. Not only has he appeared in more uh, proceedings likely than any other attorney, um, 60 by his own admission on behalf of these uh, media companies, but he and his partner, Miss Martin, helped author the form that arguably gave rise to the mischief in this case. My colleague said there is a tension in asking for what we don't know. I'd like to come back to that tension because, Your Honor, Your Honors, I would submit that tension is entirely of the appellee's own making and that if one studiously observes what the law dictates, that tension evaporates. The Court of Appeals vacated the trial court's order, remanded the case for further proceedings in this case in construing the requirements of General Statute 132-1.4a. The Court of Appeals made four discrete holdings, three of which appear in paragraph 30 of its order. The trial court failed to make, first, the trial court failed to make findings necessary to know what statutory provisions entitle the media companies to obtain the clear recordings. I will spend most of my time focusing on that first holding. And we will ask this court, as I will explain, to modify that holding. The second, the trial court abused its discretion by not redacting irrelevant recordings and an ordering unrestricted release of all recordings. Third, the trial court erred by stating and concluding it has no discretion under the statute to redact or limit the release of custodial law enforcement agency recordings. And fourth, important for my client's purposes and other um, police and sheriff agencies around the state, at paragraph 29, the Court of Appeals held that upon remand, the petitioner carries and maintains the burden of eligibility, specificity and relevance under the statute and that respondents have no burden on remand. And I'll come back to why that's important. We asked this court to modify the Court of Appeals ruling. Well, we believe that the second, third, and fourth holdings that I just referenced are important and necessary for the guidance of our trial courts. The first issue is dispositive. 
In light of what has been admitted, admitted in the filings and again admitted at the podium here today by Mr. Toddy, there is no need for remand since a close look at the first element to whom and how the statute conveys standing is dispositive. As a matter of law, media companies presently before this court lack standing and as such there exists no subject matter jurisdiction and this case should be summarily dismissed. The media companies admit, have now repeatedly admitted, that they are not, quote, authorized persons, close quote, for the purposes of invoking the right of a petition for the release of the recordings. And there is no question that they did not initiate a civil action pursuant to subsection G of the statute. And I would address Justice Riggs' question about whether that really matters. Before delving into the statute, I'd like to take a step back and discuss the underlying recordings. The recordings all pertain to a public march and protest on October 31st, 2020. That protest from law enforcement's agency began at 10.30 in the morning, or at least from the purpose, for the purpose of the petitioner's uh, request for CLIA recordings, which requested all recordings from the time law, law enforcement agencies first contacted a member of the public through to when the last uh, law enforcement um, agent had contact with a member of the public in regards to this protest. That first contact occurred at 10.30 in the morning on October 31st, 2020, when then uh, Graham Lieutenant Hakeem Tony Valdez arrived at Wayman's Chapel about a mile north of downtown Graham to meet the event the event organizer, the Reverend um, Gregory Drumright, um, who was not there, but instead there was other uh, soon to be marchers there, and so they discussed the basic logistics of what would happen and, and how it would happen and where they would go downtown, how the streets would be closed during the progression of the march, pure logistics background. Ex expecting the, the march to start soon at, at 11 a.m. At 11, approximately 11.20 p.m., Reverend uh, Drumright arrived and began a rally, did not speak with law enforcement, and in the course of that rally encouraged the protesters um, to engage in civil um, disobedience and told them that these streets are our streets, and by 11.40, I'm sorry, 11.31, they commenced their march downtown, stopping again for some for some speeches by members of the marchers arriving downtown at approximately 11.30 a.m. where the marchers stopped to observe a moment of silence um, for George Floyd. At the end of the moment of silence, the marchers picked themselves up from the pavement. Um, several proceeded to the event location in front of the Alamance County Courthouse. Others, though, refused to vacate the street, which was a state highway, and when directed to leave, they began um, protesting whose streets and answering our streets, at which point the first event that made national news, my client deployed, after re repeated warnings to vacate the intersection, deployed 
pepper spray at the pavement in the intersection, compelling the remaining protesters to vacate the intersection and move to the area where the protesters had erected a stage and were giving speeches. Approximately, and the speeches commenced, um, everything was ordered, traffic opened back up, and approximately a half an hour later, the Alamance County Sheriff's Office observed a gas can and a gas generator on the property, and in their effort to remove that from the property, <coughs> the protesters engaged the sheriff officers. A small female was knocked to the ground, um, and she immediately deployed pepper spray to defend herself, and then a small melee progressed. Long story short, the sheriff's office declared an end to the protest, ordered the protesters to leave. In the course of protesters leaving, a Graham police officer was assaulted. Graham then declared the surrounding downtown areas um, no longer a public event and ordered the vacation of the downtown Graham area. Um, several protesters refused. After five minutes of warning, those that refused to vacate were arrested. The, and Graham then proceeded to deploy pepper spray, I'm sorry, pepper vapor at the roads again, compelling folks to leave the downtown area. In all, that event, which took me approximately two and a half minutes to convey, took four and a half hours to occur. There were dozens, approximately 30 Graham Police Department personnel, and at least that number of Alamance County Sheriff officers. There were dozens of <coughs> police cams, there were drones, there were pole cams, and there were cameras on the courthouse. The petition in this case was no small matter from a simple feat of logistics for a small city police department to respond to. <coughs> It was a substantial imposition. In early 2021, in a small municipal police force to respond to a request for all recordings at a time when COVID was still a concern, COVID restrictions were still in place, police forces across this country, to include in Alamance County, were under significant distress for multiple reasons. It was a, a significant imposition to respond to a omnibus request for every recording throughout the majority of the day from a significant and multifaceted um, engagement with the public. I'm assuming if you'd gotten a disclosure request from someone who was in the video, notwithstanding the, the what you just went through about the number of cams, the, the drones, the hours, you would have had to have looked through all of that if John Smith said, I was pepper sprayed or pepper vapored, I was here. You wouldn't know whose camera he was on unless you went through all of them anyway. And we're not talking about someone who was entitled to disclosure here, so, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any complaint about having to do that, would you? I respectfully disagree, Justice Riggs, because those requests did come in. And my, my colleague, and a quick aside, my colleagues say none of this has been seen. In fact, his colleagues have done some video documentaries on that day using some of the footage. They didn't get the footage from Graham Police Department, but 
my colleague referenced two federal lawsuits, so there's also a state civil lawsuit, and there were dozens of state criminal prosecutions. The criminal defendants in these cases also have a right to these, and in many cases, the video was turned over to the criminal defendants, but you don't have to go through four and a half hours if we know, for example, that the Reverend uh, Drumright was arrested at a particular time in a particular place, they know which officers were in that place at that time. Now, those, those were not Graham police officers, they were sheriff deputies, but you can go specifically to those officers that were involved with those interactions, get their recordings, which is a small subset of the entire day's recordings, review those and, and produce those. And the practice there is- But the, the appellants here wouldn't know that, right? I mean, if they wanna see specifically, you know, you're absolutely right, Your Honor, and I will, in fact, I will um, expound upon that, that, that point that you're making. But before I do, I'd like to orient us to the record as the record, I think, is dispositive on our subject matter jurisdiction argument. The record at um, pages 198 to 199 is the petition, not the cause of action, not the complaint, but the petition for release of custodi custodial law enforcement agency recordings pursuant to our CLIA Act. The record at pages 200 through 204 was the ACO's response to the trial court detailing the videos and photos, um, approximately 700 photos and approximately 20 hours of video. The record at 208 to 215 is the Graham Police Department's disclosure of the CLIA recordings. And there is my colleague referenced referenced in excess of 50 hours of recordings. And the record at 216 to 217 is Judge Hanford, Hanford's form order on the petition where he acknowledges the highly sensitive personal uh, nature of some of the video and the risk of harm and injury in the disclosure and his conclusion that he lacked authority to, in his words, censor any of the recordings. Now there's another port, part of the record that I think is, is important, and I think my colleague actually did a, a good job for underscoring why this is just not a discrete one-off um, matter of, of little consequence. In having this same conversation with the trial court on March 8th, 2021 at pages 10 to 11, Mr. Toddy did not say, this is fine. Nobody has a problem with it. This has gone along just fine for the last 59 requests. That wasn't it at all because it wasn't fine. Nobody was pleased about having to comb through dozens and dozens of recording and, and detail everything. And, and Mr. Toddy said, and I think that what he said was very accurate, regard, regarding the breadth of the media company's omnibus request, he said, the statute does not provide any requirement to narrow this. This is talking about for disclosure. I'm sorry, for, for release. This is what the legislature has put upon all of us. We did request all of the videos similar in the Durham gas explosion. You'll recall my colleague just said that the Durham gas explosion was 151 hours of recordings. We've done this for multiple officer-involved shootings, for fatal crashes where we've had 60 and 70 law enforcement. This is the process of the of the legislature has required of us, and unfortunately, this is the process that we go through. 
I have multi-terabyte hard drives sitting in various clerks' offices all over the state. And as we've heard Mr. Tidy say, at least 60 such um, petitions. And we've provided those so that the information can be in the court file. It is typical to do it this way. I don't know how to narrow it. What was Judge Hanford to do? What was the judge in Durham to do when confronted with 150 hours? What is a so small- I, well, I'm a little bit confused. I thought I heard you say that you, sort of the lead argument that you thought was the most important <clears throat> is that there's no subject matter jurisdiction because there's a difference between a complaint and a petition. There needed to be a complaint in this case. One wasn't filed, so the trial court had no jurisdiction. If, uh, are, is this sort of an alternative argument if we would no. reject that? Because if there was no jurisdiction in trial court, uh, and so we're gonna be saying everything that happened is a nullity, how are we going on to address a bunch of merits questions about whether the trial court- Is the reason there's no subject matter jurisdiction is particular processes were put in place to address exactly the problem Judge Hanford addressed, the Durham County Court addressed, and Mr. Toddy alluded to. So the, you don't think the jurisdictional defect is that you can't file a petition to invoke the court's jurisdiction under the statute? I thought that's what you were saying. You, to invoke the court's jurisdiction under G, you have to file a, a civil action using a complaint. Yes. And that if that doesn't happen, the court, you haven't invoked the court's jurisdiction, so anything the court does is a nullity. That's exactly the argument. Well, and what I'm explaining is the statutory reasoning as to who has standing and under what conditions and why. And when those are addressed, these difficulties of the statute go away, completely go away. This inordinate burden, this burden shifting on judges, police departments, ought not to happen. And in fact, our point, Justice Dietz, which I'm slowly, apparently much too slowly making to, is that when the statute is followed and an action is commenced, none of this burden should happen. And if this burden happened 60 times previously, it was simply unfortunate that the court did, did not enforce the statute as it is written because it would have avoided these difficulties. Well, Let me one more time. Can't finish your question. But on the standing point, though, I guess what confuses me is that do you acknowledge, though, that the, we're talking about any person, which I think effectively means anyone right. can file a complaint? Yep. So I don't see the standing issue because as long file as you it. file a complaint and you're, there's no limit in this sure. statute to who, who can do it. So everyone has standing. You just have to do it right, which would be to file the complaint. Correct. And when it's done correctly, all these problems go away. There's two avenues of uh, release under the statute. The first are the any persons, people that are involved in the recordings, which my colleague admits they are not. And that um, is reflected in subparagraph C and F, actually B, C, and F of the statute. And there's a two-part process. In that process, the authorized persons view their the video is disclosed to them, they go through it, they can identify what they want, they then can file a petition in the form my colleague used, identifying specifically by time and date the video that they want released and the reasons why. Very confined, neat, and it's a special proceeding. It's very limited um, opportunity outside the process for disclosure, review, 
submission to the court of these discrete portions of the video recording. There's no opportunity in C and F for someone to walk into court and say, here's 150 hours. We don't know what's in it, but you, Justice Deeds, you figure out what we should have, and you come back and tell us. That's not how it works if you're an authorized person. Well, they're not an authorized person, so what does the statute say? It doesn't say file a petition. It specifically says file an action. Well, why is that important? Because a petition is a special proceeding with very circumscribed rights and very circumscribed procedure. If you file an action, not only do you have to file it in the form required by the rules, not only do you have to issue summons to make sure the appropriate... Um, I, I have a... <clears throat> I, did you have a question, Justice Rose? Well, it might be the same question, but I'm, I'm, I still haven't heard an explanation of why it would be different if this was called a complaint. Yeah, that's what I was uh, leading up to, Your Honor. Um, if you file a complaint, in this case, only the police chief, who is an employee of the city of Graham, is notified. If you file a complaint, the city is notified, presumably its legal counsel is notified. There's a heightened level of notice. They are served through the appropriate channels, which they were not in this case. The city of Graham is not a party here. The police chief is not an agent for receiving process for a city. Summons is issued to make sure those notices are delivered. Summons were not issued, were not served in this case, as the Court of Appeals ruled in 1998 in the case referenced by my um, colleague. That is a, a, what is a sine qua non of a civil action. You have to have summons served. But importantly then, for this proceeding, the difference between a special proceeding and a civil action is you implicate the full rules of civil procedure. So I have a question for you about that, and it, it stems from the, the last sentence in subsection G, which says, actions brought pursuant to this subsection shall be set down for hearing as soon as practicable. As soon as practicable. So in, in a typical civil action, you don't hold a hearing just because somebody filed a complaint. You hold a hearing when there's a motion, for example, to, to, to be resolved. And you deal with the merits if they're not dealt with in some preliminary motion, you deal with them in a trial. So, so what kind of hearing is contemplated uh, in this sentence, and how is it different from the hearing that's required under the sections that require, or, or that use the word petition? I think you have, uh, Justice Allen, I think you have two very different he hearings. If this is a traffic accident with one officer on the scene with one hour of recording, or if this is the gas explosion in Durham with 150 hours of recording and multiple, multiple sets of film. If this is the latter, if this is the Graham and Alamance County case where you have the better part of 100 hours of content and dozens of, of cameras, what I believe would be the appropriate mechanism in a civil action is upon that hearing, the court enter a protective order, counsel for the media companies, I'm designating all of these as attorney's eyes only, you have five days to review all of this content, come back to me, tell me what it is you want out of those recordings and why, and then, Council for Law Enforcement Agency, you have X number of days to file any objections you might have as to why those reportings should not be released or in the alternative, whether and to what extent they should be redacted. That is the normal stuff of our trial courts. And I believe the legislature contemplated that when it 
took off any persons and moved that into a civil action, and then gave really just broad outlines for the trial courts to handle getting these resolved. Resolve it timely, but get it resolved. So just to, to follow up on that, <clears throat> if you, under F, for example, where it talks about, uses, it uses similar language, uh, petitions shall be set down for hearing as soon as practicable. I, I, would, I think that means that that's where the merits are determined, or at least heard. No, our first hearing, there were no merits determined. Our first hearing was very similar to what I just proposed to you, but there was no mechanism in the special proceeding for Judge Hanford to um, turn to, to Mr. Toddy and say, Mr. Toddy, I'm designating all this uh, video. I'm entering a protective order. You go do your job as a plaintiff in a lawsuit. You review it. You come. You meet with Mr. Biller, meet and confer, and if you can't reach an agreement on the production, you come back and I'll rule on it. That's how we do it in all lawsuits. And it couldn't work that way in this case because it was a special proceeding. There were no rules of discovery. I understand your argument about the procedure would be different if this was a civil lawsuit with a complaint. But the statute, doesn't the statute in several places, it, it in essence, use the word petition and action interchangeably? And so I look at, in particular, subsection M on attorney's fees. The court may not award attorney's fees to any party in any action brought pursuant to this section. Under your interpretation, would that mean that if a petition is filed, attorney's fees would be available because it's a petition, not an action? And do you think that was the intent of the General Assembly here? Well, what did we learn in Bostock that the court is left with the plain language of the law? That would be a statutory argument. Do I think it makes sense? No, but is that the plain language? But isn't that the implication of the argument you're making to us? No, the, the, I think the, the better argument, is, well, that action means action no. as distinct from proceeding in subparagraph F? Well, your argument here is that a petition is something different from an action. And so that when the statute uses the word action, it's not referring to a petition, but a, a civil action with a complaint, um, a standard civil action. And, and I'm just saying, if your theory about what the General Assembly intended when it used the word action, then we would have to interpret M to mean that attorney's fees are not available if it's a civil action with a complaint, um, but it, it, you know, open question whether they're available if it's a petition, because a petition is not an action. Um, I think that would be a logical argument. It's certainly not the issue before this court, um, subparagraph M. And, and I, would, I would note, uh, Justice Earls, that it is not just my argument. Um, Chief Judge Stroud, in her clear opinion out of Orange County, um, in a unanimous panel from the Court of Appeals, I believe in April, of this year. Uh, Judge Griffin on behalf of the unanimous panel for the Court of Appeals for the uh, Pasqu Pasquotank had exactly the same conclusion. That action in subparagraph G means a civil action. In fact, I believe it was uh, Judge Griffin that, I'm sorry, no, it was, it, was, uh, it was Chief Judge Stroud pointed out that action is a term of art under the general statute and means a civil Can I just take procedure. you back? Suppose that you filed a petition uh, under G, and then you have a hearing under G. I just wanted to clarify a, a point you made. What, why couldn't, in that proceeding, the trial court say, I want you, the parties, to get together and review this and come to me with a proposal about you what could, parts I'm going to enter an order that seals it? You know, what, 
Is there anything that says you can't use those sorts of procedures? That in a special proceeding? Under, well, there is no G petition. It would have to be under F. And the statutory scheme, and I think one of the mischiefs that's been worked on the, on the lower courts, is the statutory scheme is if you're filing a petition for release, if you read the progression of the statute, you are an authorized party. If you're an authorized party, before you file the petition, you have a right of disclosure, which any person, any other person, the media companies, for example, do not have. So before a petition is filed, you go to the police department, you view it, you come back to the judge, you tell them exactly what it is you want. So instead of 100 hours of videotape, maybe we have two hours. But well, the point I was making is, suppose we, were, we said that the form that was used in this case satisfied the language of G. It was an action. The, that petition is an action. Those words are used in a way that this is, you know, invokes the power of the court to adjudicate the question. And in that circumstance, when you have a hearing, what I'm asking you is, is there anything that would prevent the court from saying, this is a lot to review. I'm not going to do it by myself in camera. I'm going to craft uh, through an order some protections that allow the party's counsel, for example, to review it and come to me and with a proposal of how to handle it that would address the, the burden point that you would put on, that so, you would have suppress So if the, if the, the petition was in fact a cause of action properly instituted, then I think it necessarily follows that the rules of civil procedure are implicated in the full panoply of discovery rights. Would yeah, I'm not trying to fight with you, but just forget all that. For, there's no, it hasn't, it's not a civil action. Suppose that when what the legislature meant here and they said action is just like when you're enforcing, you're domesticating a foreign judgment in certain juvenile proceedings, yeah, it those, isn't an action. Those are, no, those are discrete proceedings for only that purpose. When I go to enforce a judgment, I can't, um, I don't believe I can issue um, discovery or start serving subpoenas. I'm not positive about that, but it's right, my but understanding. I'm asking you if in that proceeding, would the court still have the power to fashion through an order the sorts of things that you're talking about, or or would because that would address the concerns you have. Is the court, if it thinks it's going to be overburdened and Justice there's no Deeds, way to administer this, can can put it on the parties? Justice Deeds, I can only I don't know the answer. I know that courts have immense authority to govern affairs in front of them. I don't know what authority they have to expand the rules of civil procedure, which I believe are are um, directed to. The civil rules of procedure are directed to civil actions. Counsel, I, I, I don't know whether they, they could. Counsel, I believe your time's expired. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> Rebuttal. Good morning. <clears throat> May it please the court. I'm Hugh Stevens. Um, surprised, but happy to be back in front of this court again. And I want to be honest and tell you that four years ago when I was here, I told you this would probably be, that would be my last appearance. But as Robert Frost says, way sometimes leads on the way. And so here I am again. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to simply address a couple of the points here. <clears throat> and, and in the interest, again, of full disclosure, I'm a native of Alamance County. And while I never spent much time at the courthouse, uh, the, the draft board that was lo uh, located across the street had a great deal of interest in me. Uh, the, uh, I think it's clear that whatever the legislature did here, they wanted to provide a mechanism 
whatever one calls it, whatever label you put on it, whereby members of the public, including our clients, or anyone who was sufficiently interested could seek to get copies of recordings made by law enforcement uh, officials and personnel in exercising their duties and responsibilities. And as um, to respond to your question, Mr. Chief Justice, <coughs> uh, the question of narrowing one's request has been in, a question I have dealt with for probably 40 years. Because the very nature of a public records case or something similar is that you are litigating over the proverbial pig in a poke. You don't usually know exactly what the person, the public official has by way of records. You may know the categories, you may have a general description, but there's no way to know in advance uh, exactly what you're asking for. So you, you do the best you can. And uh, I'd say and, and, but to that point, uh, sir, um, the judge did know, and reading from, <clears throat> from uh, his order, um, he said that release would reveal information regarding a person that is of highly sensitive nature, and I'm quoting, and may harm the reputation or jeopardize the safety of a person. So how do you reconcile that? And then his comment about his authority. How do you reconcile that with the point you're making? I realize it's a little different because I've switched the sides for you. Well, actually, with respect to Judge Hanford's statement about his lack of authority to, quote, censor the recordings, I'll just give you my take on that. I think that reflects the fact that although he ordered the law enforcement agencies to provide him with a list of any requested redactions for whatever purpose, including someone's privacy or whatever, they didn't. They never identified any redactions that they wanted. So at the end of the day, he was left with a blank slate and he determined that uh, to, he was in a position where he had no basis to go in and say, you can have this but not that because no one had pointed him to anything that he shouldn't release, even despite the fact that he had carefully and assiduously gone through the eight criteria that are set out in the statute. And with respect to what he did generally in terms of reviewing the records, I respectfully take issue with uh, my opponent's statements about that. In my experience, over many, many years, there are a great many public records cases in which judges have been called upon to do and have done exactly what Judge Hanford did here. That is, review records in camera that he or she alone sees and then make a determination under the law what is appropriate or he or she is authorized to release or what should be released. Counsel, getting back to Justice Barringer's question, if, if we can't be sure that the trial court understood it had the discretion to do that itself, make some redactions or censor particular parts of the um, recordings before disclosing them, whatever it is. I mean, don't, don't we need to remand to ensure that the court knows it has that discretion? Because we can't engage in meaningful appellate review of abuse of discretion if we don't even know the court knew it had discretion. I don't think you have to. I think you certainly have the authority to, and that's your decision. That's why we are here today, is to determine exactly what should happen. But I would say this, 
Mr. Justice Steeves. In, in number eight of his findings, here's what the judge said. There is good cause shown to release all portions of the recording. This court finds that the photos and the recordings speak for themselves. And this court does not have the authority to censor this information absent a legitimate or compelling state interest not to do so. Most importantly, this court gives great weight to transparency and public accountability with regard to police action and considers a failure to release this information to possibly undermine the public interest and confidence in the administration of justice. I think a judge who wrote that sentence, that last sentence, understood that he did have broad discretion and that he was exercising that discretion. He, and he was doing so because he had not been asked to do otherwise. He seems to have been under the impression that uh, the default rule under the statute is release. Um, is that how you read the statute? Well, that's the way this court has read the Public Records Act generally for many, many years. That is, the default is to... But this statute says that the records are not public records. I understand that, but it is placed in the Public Records Act, Chapter 132. Is there anything, to be a little clearer, is there anything in the text of the statute that indicates that the, the presumption is release? If you construe chapter 132 in its entirety, including the policy statement that opens that chapter, this court for 40 years or, or so, and certainly starting with uh, the Poole case, which I, I argued to this court, has said counsel, in that context, counsel, the, I believe your time's expired. The, uh, the statute is to be construed you, broadly to effectuate. Thank, thank you, oh, counsel. Thank, thank you. you for joining.